Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Sagi, co-founder and CEO of Tunkeen. Thanks for joining us, Sagi. Thanks for having me. So, Sagi, who is the person behind Tonkin? Let's get to know a little bit more about your background. So, if you could walk us through that, I think that'd be super helpful. Sure thing. I'm happy to. Where should I start? Start from the early days, because I know you're an Israeli native. So, I think kind of that would be uh, super, super interesting to learn about your background starting from there. Absolutely. So, I'm actually a software guy in heart. I started to write code since I was nine years old, kind of thing had my first company building websites when I was 13 and, you know, been doing this forever for my entire life. Okay. After I uh, graduated from high school, I actually joined the army in Israel. It's a mandatory service, but I joined the intelligence unit and continue to work on what I'm good at, which is writing software, building products and using technology to do things that no one knew it can do, right? And I met a lot of very strong experts as well. My co-founder, Ophir, is also from this unit. When we finished our service, after four years, I joined the tech world, joined the startup, and it was very quickly uh, got acquired by a public company that wanted to start an R&D center in Israel. So I was leading engineering. I had the uh, opportunity to grow the team there and was able to create a new site for that company from about seven people to over 120 people. And with that notion, uh, Jive sort of offered me a job as an executive to be part of the executive staff and move to Palo Alto. And that's how I ended up in that side of the globe. In terms of just adaptation or assimilation, how, how was that move for you? I'm assuming uh, fairly simple. It was, it was very simple for multiple reasons. So one thing I don't know if a lot of people know, but Israel is, is very much a US-affected culture, especially Silicon Valley type of culture. It's a very techie. Tel Aviv is a, is a huge tech hub. So a lot of great innovations and great companies um, coming from Israel. And I think the biggest uh, companies, you know, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, first or one of the first outside of the US tech hub is always Tel Aviv. And so there's a huge uh, tech community there. And so you grow up on those stories too, right? And you're very much uh, attached to it, Intel as well. So anyway, that's the first thing, right? It's just very similar. But then I spent four years at that company and I would fly here a lot, here to the Bay Area. I mean, every five weeks, I would come here for a week. And Palo Alto and San Francisco streets felt like second home. And so the transition was quite easy, that perspective as well. So now moving a little bit more into the tech, tell us what is this low-code versus no-code revolution and what does it mean for businesses? Yeah, that's a whole topic by itself. I actually always claim that low-code is definitely not no-code. You know, I mean, there's a huge gap, a nine-day gap between actually low-code and no-code. In a way, you know, if we sort of connect to the previous topic, right, as I grew the operations in this new role, I realized that software is actually not there for me when I need it. I needed to align sales departments with my engineering department. I needed to make sure that sort of the key processes that we're part of are being managed and being handled. And being a software guy, I turned to software like to see what can we do there. And so I try to make the CRM and the project management system work together. That didn't solve the problem. I tried to create, build my, our own stuff. And it always felt like the reality is that we just end up doing another sync meeting, another weekly sync meetings, another just putting people together to try to figure out what's going on and how we can move this for, further and move faster. 
And the realization I had sort of the aha moment was technology is actually for work is actually not built or leveraged correctly because business processes are actually not about data. They're about people. And being about people, you need to be able to understand what people care about. You need to be changing your ways all the time because people are very adaptive and very dynamic creatures. They're not even going to do what you ask them to do. You know, you can't send someone an email and expect them to answer it. You need to nag them, follow up with them. You need to understand, are they currently out of office or not? There's a bunch of coordination that happens as part of our work. And software, as it was in enterprises, was, were not built for that. It was built to collect information, organize information, analyze information in the raw data format of it. So every time you needed to manage information with people, you would create another app and another UI. And those became better. And I'm not saying that those are not important. People move from Jira to Monday or whatever because they like the interface better. But in reality, a lot of problems and a lot of work we do cannot be solved with a new interface. You know, it still happens in email. It's a communication between people. And so I felt like we have to enable the operations of companies to create a different type of software. And that leads me to that no-code, low-code, right? Is, Is how can you empower business units to leverage software in a way that is not creating yet another interface or another template or another form, but something deeper. Because software as a software is not an app. You know, everything runs on software and not everything has a user interface. But still somehow in enterprises, the only thing that you can actually leverage are things with user interface or very deep, you know, obviously, you know, writing code and and writing your own stuff. But there's nothing in between that actually kind of do that for you. And so for me, when I think about no-code and low-code and their impact on the business, it's really enabling and empowering a new type of people, a new segment of people, maybe a better way to say it, that are not necessarily technical at all to leverage technology in a way that we couldn't have done before. And there's many forms to this. Tonkin is about orchestrating processes, right? So it's a headless sort of like UI-less type of software. But really anything that allow a business user or an operation specialist to take software and leverage it to their own needs, to their own business process with a drag and drop without understanding fundamentals of software is what this is all about. And that's why it's so exciting. Want to dig a little bit into the thought process of how you actually got to the point of saying, I'm going to start this company? Yeah. Well, first of all, I felt like the gap in the market is actually deeper than what all the existing players are doing. The automation space as a whole is just a huge space. Every, in a way, everyone can claim they're in the automation space. Because what is automation? Right? It's leveraging technology to do what used to be manual work. Right? It's basically everything. And so the market is very noisy, absolutely. But are there real solutions to solve sort of human-centric processes? Unfortunately, the answer is other than Tonkin, is still basically no. There are definitely vendors that help with segments of it. And so on a more specific industries or more specific processes, you would find really good solutions, but those won't be in no code and won't be empowering you to build your own processes. They'll take a process that is repeatable and everyone has it, and we're trying to make that really well. And so there's a lot of those. But when you think about where I came to that conclusion was something that was very unique to the company I was working in. It wasn't something that I can you know, look online and find a solution. No one would spend money on building something specific for that, right? And so 
I felt like writing my own software is taking away focus from my team because we have other priorities. And so I really got stuck with the manual work because nothing could actually do what I do. I could potentially build just write software, write code and, and build it, but that's not top of mind. And so I was sort of stuck in between. And so for me, when we started the company, I had this like vision in which there is no way that in five, 10 years time, the operations in businesses would still run manually. It felt like there's missing a fundamental concept in the way we run businesses. And today I like to compare it to factory floor. You know, factory floor before the assembly line, you know, was just station of work. And every station might have been just, you know, a group of people sewing by hand. And then later you had like a sewing machine, so it was, you know, easier. And sometimes you literally replaced an entire station with just a huge robot or machine, right? But you still had multiple stations, some of them people, some of the machines. And the operation person, in a way, the coordinator was a person with a yellow vest, you know, just yelling, <laughs> right? And the process was just a poster on the wall with like steps of what you need to do. But then came Henry Ford, right? And changed this entire thing by coming up with that assembly line. And the assembly line, basically, you still have stations, but there's something that align and orchestrate the process or the operation end to end. So that allows... First of all, the operation team graduating from being this yellow vest personnel to be mechanical engineers, right? Because now they can create improvement, systematic improvement. They have visibility into what's going on. And that's what I felt is missing. And that's what I was setting sail to build. Not something that is, you know, oh, I want to solve this one point or this other point. I felt like there's no way that in 10 years time, you would go to a new job and realize that, what do you mean you're not orchestrating your operation? What do you mean you don't have an, an operating system to do that? Like, what, what do you do? Do you literally tell me you're sending emails around and you're like doing sync meetings? Like, how is that even possible? And that's kind of why I was like, okay, someone is going to build it. I think I have a good understanding of how this should be. So maybe this someone should be me. And digging into that a little bit. So the website says you aim to be the OS for operations teams. Now, operations teams within various verticals have very, very specific functions and very, very different needs, be that in financial services, in insurance, maybe a software company within hospitality. So how did you think about that when you were originally starting the company, or did you want to abstract it enough that it was generally applicable to various industries and verticals at that point? We didn't actually start with the operating teams. We started with the operating system for operations in general. And we actually started from bringing managers on board because we realized, you know, managers, no matter what you manage and where, you're sort of managing the operation. And we had relative early success with this that worked well, but there was a huge sort of like black and white, two different type of managers, people that understood the operation versus people that only knew how to execute it well. And that was quite a big hurdle to come across because it meant that I spent a lot of time trying to consult and help the other segment on understanding like what's not working and let's figure that thing out. Somewhere along the way, maybe a couple of years in, we realized that the market is shifting as well along with us and there's becoming this growth of ops teams as a function. So, you know, 10 years ago, you had sales ops and dev ops and that was basically it. But then since then, there's marketing ops and legal ops and finance ops and HR ops. And literally every department, every vertical, and sometimes in specific industries, there's even more specific things like claim ops or whatever it is, you know, for insurance and so on. But those operation teams or personnel 
are literally the type of people that are assigned to look at the process and understand how to improve it and how to leverage technology to improve it. So those people have exactly the type of mindset, what we call maker mindset, to build those innovations into their processes, into their business. But they don't have the right tools into their technical level. Everything is either too packaged or requires too much coding and anything in between remains manual. So basically required you to force people to change their behavior. And so in a way, when we understood that, it actually changed a lot for us just from the, from the startup life itself. We had a good start with you know, reaching out to managers, but then we sort of hit a plateau. We can grow, we can raise money. And we actually were in a situation we, when we were two weeks running out of money. And that was three weeks before my wedding. So I had to basically find a way out of that position instead of, you know, had to fire everyone. And which all, all the team, we were like only 10 people back then. All the team were my friends and they were invited to my wedding. You know? And so it was just this difficult point. But from that, we sort of realized that a better target for us is those operation teams because empowering them actually going to drive the entire vision forward and they need it. So two questions from there. One, how did you get yourself out of that situation? And second, did the wedding happen on time? <laughs> the wedding did happen on time. In fact, up to that point, I literally spent five or six months trying to raise money and I couldn't raise money. We had really good engagement. We had, we had 150 customers, but it was that, that point of like trying to educate people that are not there mentally um, was too expensive. And so even current investors had you know, a hard time thinking, how can we do that? Another fun point is that at that point, we also had a couple of acquisition offers. We had this realization of the ops teams over a weekend call and me and my co-founder, and I went immediately to try to test it. So I had you know, a few investors meetings already sort of scheduled, and I just brought it up. I was like, hey, so I'm actually thinking about it differently now. I'm thinking about it as something that goes to the operation teams, something that is similar to robotic process automation for human-centric processes. So we just sort of like changed the, just the way we talk about it. Not even, there's nothing actually changing the product. And all of a sudden, investors were starting to look at it differently. Like, oh, that's actually interesting. That's actually interesting. And so within the span of three days, I reached out back to my existing investors and telling them the same thing. They're like, hey, I have this new way of thinking about this. It looks like it's resonate with investors. What do you think? Then they're, all of a sudden, they're saying, oh, that's actually very interesting. That's actually a different way to think about it. what do you need? And I realized I need couple, you know, two, three months to make slight changes and then try to get some pilots on this new approach. So they gave me a bridge, a couple hundred thousand dollars, like very little amount of money. We still didn't actually pull any payroll, me and my co-founder, for that entire year. And we were able to build them. We were able to close all of a sudden six-figure deals worth of pilots, and that changed everything. And then we closed our seed round, and a year after, we closed our uh, recent A round for $25 million. So the wedding happened on time. The turnaround was actually in a week. So after six months of completely dry land, uh, within three days, everything sort of changed. Now, on that experience of reaching out to potential customers and running these pilots, I think what's a little bit different about the business that you happen to be in, which is enterprise software sales, as opposed to an e-commerce or direct-to-consumer model, is that that sales cycle is naturally a little bit longer. From the experience of starting the company, what would you advise to enterprise software founders going forward in terms of being cognizant of the enterprise sales cycle and how to actually sell into an enterprise? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is understanding that Enterprises are 
group of people and therefore there very quickly becomes political. And there's relationships within the companies you're talking to and the different personas has different needs. Just like what we're selling as a value prop in our product, we believe that every individual has their own ROI. And that sometimes is actually different than the company ROI. And when you go and sell into enterprises, the sort of enterprise sell 101 would talk about, you know, build an ROI cast, understand, you know, the drivers and the champions and the executives, sponsors, and a lot of those things are true. But the one thing that um, took even us a little bit time to understand is how much political things can get. And not from a bad perspective, just because everyone has their own point of view in the area that they own, Right. But navigating that and understanding what does each part of the group of decision makers that are relevant to your type of offering, what they care about and how do you make them successful? Right? One of the quotes I love of one of our customers, they mentioned, not even to us, to a third party, that after they brought in Tonkin, their boss bought them a whiskey bottle and then threw a surprise party <laughs> because... It's just, it, you know, it just completely transformed, took them from zero to, you know, to, to 60 or 100 if you're from Israel, like very, you know, very quickly. And the impact was huge. So for that person on the operation team, that was a huge boost for their career, right? And so you need to find, you know, who are the people in the enterprise that you can do that for them because that's become their go-to, you know, vendor. That's become their go-to technology, really. How'd you land your first customer? You know, in the beginning, it's all about network. It's all about, you know, people you know and just people that would take a chance on you. But there's a lot of people that also just are very early adapters and they love the ability to give feedback and participate, you know, in building something new. And their way of participating is being, you know, early customer. So we were blessed to have several of those at the beginning and learning from them because that's really the only thing you can do. You know, you have your vision of what reality needs to be. And even if that vision will become true, most of the times, and that's something I learned the hard way, if you're an entrepreneur, you're probably early. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because if you come up with something, anything worth anything, if it's already exists, then it's already... I'm not saying that you can be a disruptor and you can't create value on existing areas. Of course you can, but a lot of the newer things, if you thought about them now, you're already probably early because they're not going to be obvious. And so the biggest uh, thing for me was actually understanding where the market is. <laughs> I knew where I am and I knew where I think the market should be, but actually zeroing down on where the market is actually at in that sort of like innovation curve, I probably wasted a couple of years just to figure that out. After I felt like I do, then all of a sudden everything became so much clearer of like, what should we do and where to go from here? And the entire beginning was, I was trying things, you know, I didn't really know why they're working or not working because I didn't have that understanding, if that makes sense. No, completely. Now, something interesting, the Changemakers Initiative, uh, something that the company has been behind. What is that and uh, how did you decide to get into that space? So Changemakers is a hackathon where we're sponsoring and, uh, and sort of came up with to really help bring the top tech minds to help nonprofits. And, you know, 2020 is an interesting year for everyone, to say the least. To say the least. And, and, and there's an obvious need 
for people like nonprofits to, you know, to help and do their sort of like important work. But one of the silver lining of it is actually everyone working remote anyway. And so all of a sudden you're able to bring together people that are not bounded to the physical location. Thing we've seen in our own, you know, small world of Tonkin was there were several nonprofits that were giving our product for free. And as part of it, you know, just helping them with things and helping them with their operations as well. And one of them that we created a case study on is uh, a small nonprofit called uh, Shopping Angels. And what Shopping Angels do, they help matching elderly individuals that can go grocery shopping with volunteers that are willing to go and do the grocery shopping for them. Really cool stuff. But that's like a very specific problem from a software perspective to solve, right? You need to match those two things. There isn't a Monday or a, you know, or a Jira or equivalent SaaS application that is specifically built for matching stuff, right? So you actually need to write code. And so instead of that, one of the volunteers there you know, knew about Tonkin and so they asked if we can help. And so they were able to build something in Tonkin within a day or so that basically take the entire operation and does it automatically matching those volunteers. And now they can you know, help operate 8,000 volunteers around the US and all of it is running on Tonkin, right? And so we did a case study with them because we thought that's cool. And then while doing that, I had the idea of, hey, why not do the same thing that they do, <laughs> but globally? Can we expand on that idea and actually match makers, match tech gurus with nonprofit that usually would never have access to, you know, engineers from Facebook or Salesforce or whatever it is, right? And basically allow them to help and operation professionals too, not only engineers, right? The VP operation of a tech startup that can actually help this nonprofit that they know good, they're just good people trying to do good, but they're not necessarily expert in you know how to run a process in a business. So they do everything manually and very non-efficient and they live by the dimes that they collect. So spending that correctly is somewhat even more important than in a profitable business, if you think about it. So anyway, we decided to try to push that to the world. So we came up with Changemakers. Uh, it's at the end of October. It's the first one. We're hoping to do it every year if the first one will be successful. But it really just allows nonprofit to sign up, tell a little bit about themselves and challenges that they have, and in parallel, allow makers to sign up and just say, hey, this is who I am. That's my LinkedIn profile, and that's what I'm good at. And we, Tonkin, would help with two things. One, we'll actually do the matching, and so we'll find where the right makers to match with. We'll try to make it locally make sense too, but we do want it to be globally. We'll be very excited if there's a maker from Belgium that helps a nonprofit in Egypt or whatever it is, right? And the second thing is that we'll let both the makers and the nonprofit going forward to use Tonkin for free for building those initiatives. Of course, they don't have to use Tonkin though. They can do whatever they want, whatever they need. Sometimes the problems the nonprofit has are actually much more trivial than that. And just like my Excel is a mess, you know, can you help me you know, do that? But if they need to use Tonkin, they can use that for free too. And my hope is that we'll get relationship out of that from the makers to the nonprofit that are long lasting. So that one week of a hackathon is more of like a Cupid, you know, like a, a matchmaking kind of thing. But from our experience with nonprofit, some of the volunteers there are experts, uh, engineers in you know, tech companies, and they're with them for years now. And that's the way to give back for them as well. So now it's actually much easier to do because it's online. And we're very ex- I'm personally very excited about this. Now, the last person that I wanted to get to is culture and culture continuity, given the current environment that we're in. 
But the first thing that I wanted to start off in that perspective is you served in the IDF before, both you and your co-founder did. How has that background influenced you as an entrepreneur and a leader? Because I guess it would almost on the surface be able to say that the way that a military unit would run is very different than this free-spirited mindset of an entrepreneur. But how has that background influenced you as a leader in the organization? It's huge, I think. I think it's actually a real blessing in a way to experience such a different type of group of people working together, right? The military is one thing and then working on a startup is a different thing. And then working in a tech public company is a third thing that have all have similarities and but also huge differences, right? I think the biggest thing for me though, for us, by the way, me and my co-founder, and we have a lot of people in our R&D team that actually also comes from that unit. There's something about the military that we just don't have in anything else, maybe only in healthcare or health, like doctors and stuff, is that concept of what you do actually affect life. Like you're alive or dead kind of thing, right? You know, the worst case that can happen for an engineer writing software, creating a bug in the system of a SaaS application or um, any, you know, enterprise software or consumer software is the loss of money. And that's significant. Where we were in the unit, if you're making a mistake or your servers are down, that can cost life, actual life, like anything from civilian life to military life. And so that kind of gives you a different perspective on quality, different perspective on mission, and different perspective on how to go about solving problems, right? The problem needs to be solved. The value has to be there. Otherwise, you're just training water. Right. So for me, that was a big, big, big deal into how to manage and how to you know, empower people. Because funny enough, in the army, people think about an army as a very sort of rigid marching order kind of thing and the opposite of an individualism kind of thing, which is very true. You know, everyone wearing the same uniforms, individualism is the first thing they take out of you. But funny enough, the empowerment and trust is actually way higher than what you see in a lot of other places because you give a gun to everyone. And you get, you know, I mean, it's, you send them to battle. And so you actually expect them and you train them to have trust on each other and have each other's back, right? And whether you're in, on the field with a rifle or whether you're, you know, behind a computer, you still have that sort of fundamental training into what you do has a life and death impact. And so therefore you're empowered to move fast and make decisions because you have to. No book of like, what to do can actually expect everything that will come up. So we have to train you to think to yourself and be able to handle a situation. And so, you know, from a management perspective, that helped me a lot into thinking about ownership and mentorship and giving empower to everyone in the company to really run their own course. So that was huge on that front. And then the other part of not the military, but specifically the intelligence unit, the world of space and intelligence and, you know, it's what you see in the movie is obviously Hollywood version of it, but the essence is actually not that far. The entire purpose of those units is to come up with things that are just non-trivial. By definition, you're trying to be smarter than the enemy or the whoever, you know, has a threat on you. And being smarter means being more innovative and coming up and building things that might sound impossible to, you know, a civilian. And so, that was a big part of our first value in our company is there's always a way. And it comes from that very you know, basic concept of there is not such thing as impossible. 
the impossible things, you know, it looks like magic, but there is no magic. Magic is just a very smart trick, right? And so there's always a way if you think it's impossible, then you're just looking at it the wrong way. You just need to look from a different direction. Both of those experiences, being in an army as an army and an intelligent unit as an intelligent unit, I think are a big part of my personality and definitely a big part of my persona as an entrepreneur. And just the last question on the continuity of value and the continuity of culture as you move into a distributed workforce given COVID, how have you been able to navigate that or how has managing that scenario been to ensure that the culture at Tonkin is still continued even though people are remotely in different places now and you're not next to each other at the office? Yeah, it's tough, especially because we've been growing quite rapidly during this year. And so there's a lot of new hires that joined into this situation. I think there's two types of work that we do in our day-to-day, the transactional executional work. I don't think that has been impacted. And we have been already a culture of you come whenever you want, you can work from home if you want. All I care about is the, you know moving on. So that, again, ownership and empowerment. So from that perspective, I can actually say we didn't even feel the change that much. It was a very smooth transition. The other type of work, though, is this more serendipity type of unplanned brainstorm eureka moments that happens when you fill the coffee cup and like someone that you're not working with on the daily basis is just like hey how's it going man you know what are you gonna do and kind of thing the human element the human exactly the 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 actual thing that we are born with and that is missing i feel it every day and we're trying to do a bunch of things and i know a lot of people have tried that which are hard you know like have a virtual coffee breaks and stuff like that but in reality I hope sooner rather than later, but, you know, when this um, sort of like comes down more, the ability to just meet, even if it's for for like in a park, for a brainstorm session or things like that would have to be part of the way we run businesses. So yeah, I don't have a smart solution for that. That's definitely something that we'd like, I think everyone else are struggling with. That was Sagi Elio, co-founder and CEO of Tonkin. Sagi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, man. That was, that was a blast. 